Cold Dive. I'm Lucas, aka Chrono Kirby, and this is the place for musings on technology, cryptography, and whatever else is on my mind today. So, one interesting topic which came up on Twitter recently was that of using zero-knowledge proofs in the context of machine learning. So, different things you could do here. But at first I was a bit uh, perplexed as to why you might want to link these two areas together. And that's because machine learning models are fundamentally vague in their output. Like when you train a machine learning model, you know that it will have a certain performance on average over your test set. So maybe 96% of the time it gets the right answer. But how it performs outside of that is somewhat unknown. So usually it performs well in, in many cases, but there are often edge cases where your model doesn't do the right thing. And those edge cases are unpredictable usually. Or sometimes you can even create what's called adversarial examples, where you intentionally manipulate some input in order to cause the output to, to go badly. Now, another aspect of this is that often it's, it's hard to define what exactly the correct output should be. So if you're, for example, classifying images, in most cases, to humans at least, it's clear which label the image should have had. If you're trying to recognize dogs in an image, uh, you can tell whether or not there's a dog in it. Sometimes though, even with that example, maybe it's not clear whether or not there's a dog. Maybe like there's a blurry picture of some animal from afar and you're not sure if it's a dog or not. Maybe it's a, you know, a cat or something or some other thing. <laughs> and in many cases, for example, one of the recent uh, big animal model hype things is uh, image generation from prompts. And there, I mean, it's it's very, unclear what exactly the correct image to generate from a prompt is. Now, there are cases where it's sort of clearly wrong. In many cases, the output of the model is more like vague and somewhat related to it, but there's just a huge amount of possible images to generate from a prompt which aren't you know, wrong per se, but are just vague. And so it's, 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 it's very hard to say that this particular image that you generated is correct. So, at first, what the, the concept of ZK proofs for ML crossed my, my feed, I was a bit perplexed because if you think about it in terms of, I want to prove that I ran you know the right model, if you care about the output being correct, I mean, it's difficult to distinguish an output that came from the model or that didn't. Uh, and, you know, at some point, does it really matter whether or not it came from the model? If you just care about, you know, the correctness of the output. Now, one thing where it can be useful uh, to have a proof that you ran a specific model is if you want to prove the people that you're not using different models for their inputs. So, for example, let's say you're running a service where you do image generation, uh, you know, on your own servers, and then people give you prompts. And some people are, like, suspicious that you're actually using a smaller or like less performant model for their inputs and cheating them out of it. 
So what you can do is you could provide a zero knowledge proof. Oh yeah, also in this context, you also don't want to just like, well, you don't really need a zero knowledge proof, you just need a succinct proof because you don't necessarily care about leaking the model. It's just that you're, the model's expensive to run, so you're doing that service. So even if the weights were leaked, most people wouldn't be able to, either for lack of technical savvy or for lack of, you know, beefy GPUs, they wouldn't be able to run it themselves. So, you have the service where you're running, you know, image generation or whatever big model on people's inputs on your own servers. And you want to prove that you're using the same model for each person. So you could use a succinct proof uh, to do that. So the succinct proof would, would, you know, attest to the fact that this output came from running the model on that input. And it's the same model that you've been using for other people. So that'd be, that'd be one use case. Uh, one sort of problem with this is that it's actually possible to create a model which like will behave differently on certain inputs intentionally. So you could sort of get around that mechanism like this. Now, at first I only had this kind of use case in mind and I was, I was a bit skeptical, but then someone pointed out to me, uh, yeah. Uh, some other extensions of this. For example, one thing you could do is that you want to keep the inputs to the model hidden. So one way to do one way to keep the inputs to the model hidden is that you have people run the model on their own devices. So this works if the model is quite small. But one issue is that if you have a, a system where you send the model to someone, they run on their input and then they send you just the output. Uh, they could just send you whatever output they want. So a zero-knowledge proof, and it has to be zero-knowledge to hide the input, would let you attest to the fact that you know an input such that when run on this public model, you get the output. And so that would allow you to sort of delegate uh, the usage of an ML model to be able to run it on private inputs because someone could run on their private input and then attest to the fact that they actually ran the, the correct model. So that would allow the use of uh, sort of delegated machine learning running and that would help privacy in some sense and one sort of example of doing this is like um, you know maybe you're you're trying to do face id or something but you don't want you basically want users to be able to find like the pre-image of the machine learning model and not just uh, send out the output now one tricky thing that's going to come up a lot in these examples is that machine learning like doesn't have great security. <laughs> like one thing you can do with a machine learning model is that it might be possible from the output of a model and its weights to reverse engineer what the input was. Like there's no guarantees that uh, an ML model is going to be hard to to reverse. Especially, and you could also like create a malicious model once again, which has you know sufficient sort of information bandwidth that you can sort of re-encode the input into the model. For example, like one thing you could do is like a train a machine learning model, which tries to, you know, on one hand, learn a function, and on the other hand, learn the identity function. So like it learns, you know, generating an image from a prompt, but also attaching the prompt to the image generated. And so if you do it like that, then you wouldn't have any privacy if you just have the output in the model. So. I feel like whenever you try and combine 
cryptographic techniques with ML, you're going to run into issues like this. Another thing related to ML security is sort of a model privacy. So that was that could be one motivation for running the model on your servers. You don't want to leak the weights at all. But in this case, letting people query, you know, certain inputs to the model and see what output you get could be enough to learn the weights of the model if you have malicious inputs. So there are attacks where you query specific inputs for the model and you look at the outputs and using that you determine what the weights of the model are. And there are different sort of degrees of severity to the attack. In some attacks you need to know what the model looks like, like what topology it has, so what shape the weights are in and where they're located. And other ones you don't even need to learn that. So the the model hiding use case is I think not a great one because these attacks are very sophisticated <laughs> already. And then I guess the final use case, which I haven't touched upon, is that of using a sort of proof of, of training. So maybe you want to prove that a model was trained on a particular data set. And I'm, I'm a bit skeptical on this one because, once again, like the output of a model is, you know, well-defined. So like, there's no really real way to like distinguish the output of a model that was or wasn't trained on a particular data set. So like, what, what does it really matter if it was actually trained on a data set or not? Also like creating this proof would be, you know, at least as expensive as training the model again. So that's a pretty big cost for this proof, you know? Anyhow, that's like a bit of a, a few thoughts on, on zero knowledge proofs for ML. Oh, I guess one more thing is that if you want to use, you know, machine learning models and like smart contracts, they can be like, and you want to do like rollups, it's definitely necessary to have the same proofs of, of their execution. So that's useful. And having machine learning models in, in smart contracts can be useful, useful for different things. Like maybe you're using it for like market pricing, although probably an analytical solution would be better. Uh, it's, maybe you're trying to do like biometric stuff in a smart contract. I don't know, but yeah, as machine learning like takes on more and more functionality, you might want to use those models in odd places like smart contracts. So, being able to prove stuff about them just from like a technical level is interesting. Um, and then in terms of implementation, well, you run into the issue that machine learning sort of wants to use floating point arithmetic. Uh, one way to do this would be like you use Boolean circuits. Oh, and zero knowledge proofs usually use arithmetic circuits, which are working over finite fields, which are very, very different than floating point numbers. So with Boolean circuits, you could sort of do this in that you would have a, a Boolean circuit representing operations bit by bit. And this would allow you to represent floating point operations since those can be implemented with logic gates. Uh, this would have enormous overhead. Uh, sort of better approach is what's called quantization. So instead of having a floating point number, you have like a fixed fraction. So like maybe one out of 256, that's like one number, you know, 37 out of 256, uh, another number. So you can represent, you know, things in the range in some arbitrary range but you only use like an actual integer. So maybe use one byte or two bytes or something like that. 
And that's much more amenable to zero knowledge proofs because you're actually doing sort of arithmetic. So you could implement that in an arithmetic circuit with you know correct range checks since you're working over field and you can have overflows. So if you quantize things, it would work a lot better. And having ring arithmetic might be useful for this uh, as well, rather than just fields. Because that would more closely match, you know, what's going on. But I think it's it's somewhat of an unexplored space. There's probably a bunch of optimizations that would happen if people actually do this in practice. One tricky thing in terms of deployment is that I think the threshold for a useful ZKML system is very high. Because, like, the models that people are using nowadays are just enormous, and you're... You're not going to get the working in like any anywhere in the near future in terms of your launch proofs. Like in terms of like things like machine learning models are like some of the most computationally expensive things that we run. There's there are things that are further above that, like you know large scale simulations. But in terms of like stuff that gets run like relatively frequently, it's 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 a huge uh, amount of compute. And that means you know an even more astronomical amount of compute if you're doing zero knowledge proofs. So that's that's very tricky. And what you'd want ideally for good adoption is to have sort of like a smooth, like, I guess, learning curve where like you have small models you try to get to work and then larger models. And that sort of incentivizes the creation of better proof systems for these things because you're able to see immediate, you know, gains and applications. If you have this big threshold, this big hump to overcome, you might never like gain any traction because it's just too difficult to get anything useful. So people just abandon the idea. So something to think about. And I guess, you know, talking about how big ML models are brings me to another topic I want to cover today, which is like how centralizing ML is as sort of a force. So I don't know if I'm really like an ML bearer, but there are like a lot of aspects of machine learning that I don't like aesthetically. And one of those is that it's sort of kind of against personal computing in some sense. Because with the way machine learning models more work is that you're sort of reliant on somebody else both to train the model, because training is prohibitive, like costs millions of dollars nowadays for at least for the large, you know, language models or the image generation models. And you can't run it on your own hardware unless you have, you know, really you know, quite high-end specs. Like, for example, to run uh, Stable Diffusion, which is this popular uh, machine learning model for image generation, which has had its weights, I think, leaked or released. <laughs> and people have been playing around with it. And to do that, I think you need at least a, a GPU with at least uh, 10 gigabytes of, of video RAM. Uh, just uh, the bottleneck there is that you need to fit the model in memory on your GPU. And you run these things on GPUs because you need uh, very parallel floating point operations. And, you know, doing it on a CPU is just not going to be fast enough. And so you insert this bind where either you need a very powerful computer or you need, or you need like to trust some other service to run it for you. And, and here's the other bind is like with stable diffusion, people running the end result of the model, but they didn't train it. And so, like, training it is still out of the reach for, like, the average person. And so this is, in some sense, a downfall of personal computing, because now you're sort of beholden to other people and, and running their services. And this makes the models much less composable, because you sort of, with 
OpenAI's Daily, for example, you had like a website. If you wanted to use this in like an automated way, it with other like you know scripts or something like that, you wouldn't be able to do, able to do it easily. And so that's sort of the antithesis of personal computing in some sense. And there's also sort of economies of scale which like make this happen is that as you develop the infrastructure to do these large trainings, you get more efficient at the next training because you have all, all the infrastructure in place to do it and all the hardware because that's a sort of a fixed expenditure, especially if you own the hardware rather than just running it on the cloud. And if you do that, well, then you, you, you know, get more and more efficient at training these models. And so then it becomes more difficult for competitors to enter the space. And so because of these economies of scales, like you naturally get what's happened where a few large industrial labs are working on the latest models, at least in terms of like benchmarks for records and stuff like that, which require like the biggest and latest and greatest. And you can sort of oppose this with other sort of innovations in software where algorithmic improvements help everyone because, you know, a smart algorithm can't be run by on anyone's computer. Whereas a lot of the improvements in ML have just come from throwing more compute power at the problem. Uh, there has been, you know, not to denigrate stuff, there's been interesting work in sort of being able to use this compute power effectively because you just ma madly or blindly throw compute power at a problem, it's not necessarily going to work. So having a model which is able to scale with more compute power, that's quite interesting. But nonetheless, it still creates a situation where like, you're using more and more resources to train and eventually only a few companies will be able to afford that. And then since they spent so much money on training, they're going to want to keep the model secret because the weights were expensive to make. So they're going to lock, you know, the model behind a service that you have to pay for. Paying for it isn't, paying for it even, isn't even the bad part because if it's an open, you know, market where you can pay for something, it's not too bad. And if there's a few competitors, it's not the end of the world. But often if there's only one person with the model, you know, they have monopoly pricing power. So that's one thing. Also, sometimes they won't even let you pay for the service. Like with OpenAI's like image generation model thing, like it, it took them months and months to get the payments working. And then even then they have like filters and sensors for like the output of the model. And it's just like, it's just like sort of the antithesis of being an open platform you can use for a fee. A neutral, a neutral fee for a service, I wouldn't mind even that much, you know? It's the, it's the fact that you don't control, you know, what you can do with the model. Yeah, lots of those things irk me a bit. And another aspect of, of ML that I really dislike, perhaps even more than these, is that often ML is used for like critical decision making, despite the outputs of the model being vague. And because it's sort of run on a computer, it gives it this sense of like, like infallibility. So, for example, you know, one thing that comes up often is like sometimes machine learning models might be, might get used for like fraud detection. So you could get locked out of your account because of some weird behavior that's like completely normal, but just the model reached an edge case, and then you have no recourse because like it's like well, you know, the model said you were fraudulent, so we're just going to ban you. Uh, there's sort of the this recent thing. I I guess this sort of falls on the umbrella of machine learning. There was like a father in the United States. Who had sent you know pictures of of his children, uh, you know for medical purposes to his uh, pedi their pediatrician, and that got flagged on his Google account as being you know abuse uh, abuse images. And you know obviously they weren't they're just you know neutral pics for medical purposes, 
even if they were sen sensitive. And, you know, Google blocked his account, forwarded this information to the police, and the police investigated, and obviously he didn't find anything and cleared him. But then Google still still kept this account, uh, this account banned. And I think this happened to two people, actually. And this is sort of an example of unaccountable ML, because it's sort of, you get flagged for, you know, in this case, it's even behavior that, that, uh, that might actually be a correct use of the model, in the sense that visually, uh, these things would be similar. But the tricky, the tricky part is that even after he was cleared by the police, there was no recourse and no, no sort of apology or restoration of his account. And that's, that's the part that irks me more. Another example of where like ML models get used blindly without any recourse is like in financial stuff. So you obviously have the sort of flagging for financial fraud and stuff like that. And that's, you know, very devastating if you get locked out of your bank accounts. Um, but then there's even just stuff like, uh, for example, you know, credit credit applications. So like they might someone might develop a fancy you know ML model which takes in a bunch of factors and gives you a credit score, and you can use that to apply for loans or whatever. But like it might once again reach an edge case and then there's like no recourse because like there's just no the systems are usually designed to just use the ML model as sort of this opaque box, and there's no you know con conception or or even way of dealing with the model being incorrect because it's sort of taken as infallible. And the problem is that the model is often not interpretable. So like it just gives you an answer, but there's no way to tell whether or not it's incorrect. Whereas with the, like a traditional, if you had a traditional like formula to calculate the score, at least you could sort of you could sort of objectively say what's going on. And if someone could challenge like the way certain things are computed. So for example, like if I had a credit score based on how much debt you have, what's your income, and you know how many times you've defaulted. Well, someone could say, well, you know, I think you're you're taking into account the default rate too highly in your model because it, this factor is too high. You know, you could challenge that. With the ML model, you know, maybe it takes in these inputs, but you have no idea how it combines them together. And maybe, like, the output is even non-linear. Like, maybe it's like, you know, if you have a high enough default rate, it start, suddenly starts giving you okays for loans. And there would be, it's difficult to, you know, figure this out. A lot of people aren't even spending much time on testing it. Another one that, that, that came up which annoyed me a bit was that the the tax agency in the U.S. the IRS was going to was going to outsource uh, for accessing tax information not for filing taxes taxes they were going to outsource uh, sort of verification to this company and they were going to use facial recognition but many people reported like their facial recognition and like fraud detection didn't work that well so they just couldn't log in. And, and that's, you know, another case where you just get locked out of using a service because, like, you're in the, in the tail of, of where stuff just happens to not work. And often this tail for ML models is pretty big. Like, you can have 10% of cases which just don't work as, you, as you'd expect them to. And so this combination of a model that performs badly with an org recourse is really dangerous. Because if you think about it, an ML model, the best you can hope for is, like, something that performs similar to a human. Like, with the way we're training them, like, that's the output you end up having. So with image generation models, you get an output that looks like what an artist would have drawn with enough time. Or with credit scoring, you get what, you know, someone would have, you know, guessed, you know, given those inputs. But the thing is that, like, it's fundamentally not objective. It's just sort of pattern matching and, and, and guessing and, and estimating. But people often use it as if it's infallible. So if you, if you replaced the ML model with the opinion of a human, 
and that gave you a system which didn't make sense, then using the ML model in the first place doesn't make sense. I think that's a good analogy. So for example, if you're trying to, you know, detect, you know, dogs and pictures, if you replace the ML model by just a person that you pay to detect dogs and pictures, the system would work fine, you know. But for credit scoring, if you replace the, the model with a, a, a person that was just, you know, looking quickly at the different factors and saying, oh yeah, we should approve this loan or not, you'd say, well, you know, obviously with the system, we should have some form of recourse because just having one person deciding, you know, that doesn't make sense. But if you have a machine learning model and there's no recourse, it's effectively the same as just one person deciding. In terms of the objectivity with, with at least current models, it's, it's similar to that of a human's judgment. So... That's kind of where I stand on the on the ML thing, and I guess one one final thing to end, in this episode, since we're on the topic of like ML being sort of the centralizing force with economies of scale, uh, I also think that the zero knowledge proofs might end up trending towards that, at least when it comes to like succinctness proofs, or like proving that large batches of stuff are correct. So often, like uh, if you look at sort of different roll-up proof systems often need to prove like a very large statement. So like, you know, a thousand transactions are valid or something like that. And these are like so expensive that it's often not even possible to prove this on commodity hardware. One big issue is sort of like with the GPU thing for machine learning models is that you need to like fit the entire constraint system or like related stuff into memory. So often you have linear memory usage in the number of like constraints in your proof system. And this creates sort of a threshold because you need a big enough computer just to store all this stuff. Most of the software just won't work. Uh, like it won't even allow you to like stream and like swap stuff in and out of memory. So that's, that's one issue. And another issue is that a lot of snarks and stuff aren't designed to be able to like stream the input. Because one thing you could do is like you say, well, instead of needing the entire input in memory at once, we sort of like scan the input and then produce the output. And if you could do that, that'd be great because then it would allow computing to be more fungible. Because like if you had a slower computer with smaller memory, it'd just take more time, but you could still run things. But eventually, like in terms of the cost, it it if you know there aren't improvements in software, it's most likely going to get outsourced to other other things other servers. And now you could try and design systems which avoid these pitfalls, but most likely you're going to need external servers with good hardware to, to do these things. And a lot of companies are even working on hardware acceleration for this. And with hardware acceleration that increases the economies of scale because if you if you spend the capital to get more powerful like, you know, hardware accelerated proving systems, then you'd have an advantage over all the competitors and then so all of the, the proving work would go to you because you have much much less latency in your in your proving because you have much more powerful hardware. And this in turn means that you collect all of the fees for that so you have the ability to, to buy even better hardware. So there's definitely this sort of centralizing effect if you outsource proving. And then you also sort of need to design a decentralized fee market for this to, you know, not be a centralizing because a lot of rollups the model is like well you know there's going to be one block producer or something like that and that's obviously not very decentralized it's it can still be okay in the sense that you, there's like an exit hatch 
uh, not to get too far into realism, but basically like you can sort of like withdraw your money from the system because of the underlying layer one security. But designing decentralized, you know, proving markets is very difficult, I think. But that's sort of what people would be trending towards. But even there, it'd be sort of like mining pools where you do have these economies of scale where like, you know, big miners with access to consistent cheap electricity and specialized hardware have a huge advantage over other miners. So you basically have a replication of the mining ecosystem where the end result of that, if you look at things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, is that people just don't mine at home. At least, especially with Bitcoin. Like, there used to be a point in time where people were mining on their laptops or whatever for fun, but now it's it's basically all industrial-scale operations, which, in some sense, it's a good thing because it means that, well, the thing is that, is that not to get too much into the economics of mining, because that could be a whole episode, but in some sense, in some sense, it's like deadweight loss for, for mining because it's, it's basically just you're, you're expending money to prevent other people from expending, to basically in, increase the threshold of money at which, which you'd have to spend to attack the network. So that there's a value provided there. But in some sense, if people, if people collaborated and nobody was willing to attack the system, you wouldn't need to mine at all. Whereas the proving, uh, you know, proving does provide a valuable service no matter what. So if you have more proof, uh, you know, capacity on deck, it's just better because there's just more things you can do. You're not using proving to like prevent the. Uh, you don't need to like. You can't use like the fact that you can prove a bunch of stuff because you have a bunch of proving hardware to attack the network. So like, there's no, there's no zero sumness here, and any proving capacity in addition just allows people to roll up more transactions and and prove more things. So. So I think there's sort of two directions we're trending towards in CK proofs, which is either to have decentralized proving markets, and then you can have like mining pools and like economies of scale there with specialized hardware, or at least, you know, beefy GPUs. And the other one is like software improvements to make uh, proving more fungible. And you might even have sort of some innovations here, like theory-wise, in order to have sort of like decentralized proving, where you could sort of distribute the proving of some statement across many nodes. And you can have a much more decentralized pool there. Or just make software which makes proving much more accessible to people. But even if you make proving like very fast and you can like run arbitrary things, that'd be great because then you could you could use proving in a lot more contexts and for a lot more applications. But in terms of like the roll-up use case, I still think that you're probably gonna converge to something that looks like mining. But perhaps with a bit more decentralized pooling and more guarantees of getting paid and whatnot. Anyhow, I think that's a good point to close this up. This was The Cold Dive. I was Lucas, a.k.a. Corona Kirby, and I wish you the best of days. Until the next one.